Hello, Potters, and welcome back to episode four of me reading Children of Eden. Also, this is literally irrelevant information, but I just ate a mochi, but it was like mochi with ice cream in the middle, and it was mint chocolate chip, and it was bomb. It was amazing. And for all of you stupid people who think mint chocolate chip ice cream tastes like toothpaste, you're whack, and you probably don't even brush your teeth. Because if you did, you would know that they taste completely different. Anyway, (laughs) that was my quick little rant about mint chocolate chip ice cream. But anyway, yes, it smacked. Um, (laughs) moving on. Today, we're reading chapters 7 and (laughs) 8. I had to go look. I couldn't remember. I have terrible memory, so... Yeah, there's that. Um, anyways, so today we're reading chapters 7 and 8, and we're gonna do a quick little recap of last chapters, um, 5 and 6, and what happened. So, basically, we already know this, that Rowan is out in Eden, she's walking around, um, and she's like, she's disguised, she's wearing her brother Ash's uniform, school uniform, and, um... She runs into a green shirt, and the green shirts are, like, they're, like, basically the police of Eden. You know, they're looking out for second children. Really, they're just police, except they're called green shirts. Um, So they're looking out for, like, crime and second children and blah, 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 blah. So she runs into a green shirt, and they both look directly into each other's eyes. And obviously, Rowan does not have the lens implants that everybody else has and so she freaks out and she like shoves him and runs the other direction um and he's going after her but then she finally loses him and so she's walking around with a bunch of other school kids um and then she takes a break and um the green shirt she ran into whose name is Rook and um his like sergeant person this other green shirt are walking past her as she's sitting on this bench and he definitely sees her and like recognizes her from before but he doesn't do anything and so Rowan is sitting there wondering why but then she decides to get up and go to the rainforest club like where all the other students are going and here while she's trying to make her way out of the rainforest club she finds Lark who is Ash's best friend. And so, at first, Lark thinks that Rowan is Ash, and they sit down and then talk for a little bit, and then she realizes that it's definitely not Ash. And she realizes that they're twins, but she promises not to give away Rowan's secret or tell anybody about it. Um... And they sit down and they talk for a while, and then Lark reveals that she thinks that Eden's resources are not decreasing, but actually they're increasing, which is not what the government told them. So, there's a quick little recap to catch up, and now we're going to get started on Chapter 7. Chapter 7. An hour later, I make my way home in a dream. Well, a dream that is part nightmare. So far in my life, my strongest emotions have been limited to such things as boredom, loneliness, and occasional hope. 
Now I've not only learned an entirely new range of feelings, but I've discovered that even seemingly contradictory ones can exist side by side. As I creep home with Lark, I'm both giddy and afraid. Both emotions have the same symptoms. Pounding heart, shaking knees, anxious darting eyes. As we start out, I realize I have no idea where I am. The map I thought I'd had in my head is gone. It should be obvious, and it would be if I was calmer. Eden is laid out in s- Ugh, I can't read. Eden is laid out in concentric rings with connecting spokes. So all I really have to do is mark the huge emerald eye of the center and head inward until my find- Until I find my own circle. I am so sorry. I- <laughs> I- There is just something about me reading out loud lately that is just throwing off the way that I speak, so. Anyway. <laughs> But I'm so shaken by everything that has happened this night that suddenly I feel lost. This way, Lark says gently and leads me through a bot access passage. I turn, pulling against her guiding hand. Are you sure? I can see the shining green dome in the other direction. I thought... I, c I see a few green shirts on patrol tonight. More than they usually have in this circle. Are you sure no one spotted you earlier? I think... No... I say, not wanting to worry her about my mysterious encounter with the young green shirt. Still, something's up tonight to have increased security. We should go the long way around. If we cut out to the next ring and then take another spoke back inward, we'll attract less attention. I'm nervous, but I trust her. You sound like you've done this before. She gives me a smile of mischief. I've snuck out to a meeting or two, she admits. I question her with raised eyebrows and she elaborates a bit. People who think like me. People who aren't so certain that all is well and needed. Naturally, the less, I t the less attention I get, the better. I am struggling. I've literally read like half of a page and I'm struggling. Anyways. <laughs> People who aren't so certain that all is well and needed. Naturally, the less attention I get, the better. And some of the meetings are in outer circles, so it's safest to be sneaky. I know she means not just safe from the focus of a four- of- Oh my god, I- I deeply apologize. I... Whatever, I'm moving on. <laughs> I know she means not just safe from the focus of authorities, but from the seedier element that lives in the outer circles. Ash never mentioned any of this. I guess Lark has a secret life, too. I hardly even see the gaudy lights, the extravagant co costumes of the passerby. We've reached the next ring, and though it is visibly less clean and chic than the entertainment circle closest to my house, it is still hopping with activity and crazy with color and decoration on both the people and the buildings. Look out! I whisper when I see a green shirt up ahead. But Lark takes my hand and pulls me so that I veer away from him. He hadn't noticed us before, but the sudden movement makes his head swivel towards us. I tense, ready to run, but Lark laughs and leans toward me as if whispering some secret. What she really says is, Smile! He has no idea who we are. Just girls out for a night of fun together. I stretch my tense face into a smile, and the green shirt turns away. We clearly aren't a threat. Bit by bit, I start to relax. With Lark to guide me, I feel... Not safe, exactly, but as if I'm in good hands. The music, the crowds, no longer intimidate me. I feel like I'm a part of it all now. I have a connection. I have a friend. Do you have any idea where you'll be living when you go with your new foster family? Lark asks. I shake my head. I left before I could learn any details of my future. I hope it's close, Lark goes on, but if not, there's always the auto loop. 
You can get anywhere in Eden in a few hours now that they've upped the rail speed. There's so much swirling around in my head. Just a couple of hours ago, I was told I'm about to leave my home, my family. Who knows when I'll see them again? I'll be living with strangers. I'm torn up about that, and yet... Somehow there's an edge of happiness. When I ran away from my home into the night, I felt like my whole world had broken. Now I begin to think that I can put the pieces back together. Not in exactly the same way, of course. But maybe, just maybe, even better. Is it Lark that makes me feel that everything isn't as grim as it first seemed? Now that I've met a friend, shared my secret, anything seems possible. Not that I don't have enough problems of my own to worry about, but somehow I keep thinking back to everything Lark told me about the supplies, the one-child policy, her vague theories about something being wrong with Eden. But what does that matter? The world is what it is. Dead outside, alive in here, and I have to make the best life for myself given what I have. Whatever is going on in the government and supplies, or in the electronic heart of the Ecopanopticon, that's not my problem. My heart slows to the point that I can have a real look around me. We're walking briskly through the next entertainment ring, while the one nearest my house, the entertainment district closest to the center, seemed loud and boisterous at the time. I can see now that by comparison with this ring it was quiet, civilized, and staid. There, people walked slowly, in orderly fashion, politely making way for one another. Here, they jostle and shove. There seemed to be many more people. More security, too. Did Lark make a mistake going this way? They have other things to worry about, she says when I express my concern. Look over there. I see a man standing on a small folding stool, head and shoulders above the crowd. Fragments of his impassioned speech reach me. Dominion over land and sea, over the beasts of the earth and the fish of the sea. Few people seem to be paying him any attention. Most just walk by, but every once in a while someone stops to shout a curse, and even once someone hurls soggy scraps of a sandwich at him. He keeps on declaiming with the burning eyes of a fanatic. Idiot, Lark says, scowling in his direction. That's the kind of thinking that got us here in the first place. What is the Dominion, exactly? I ask. I've heard the term occasionally, but I don't have- Oops. Yeah. I don't have the vaguest idea what it's all about. It's a cult, or a political movement, depending on who you talk to, Lark said. They believe that humans were meant to rule the Earth, and that destroying it was just part of the master plan. Whose master plan? I ask. She shrugs. They talk about a book written thousands of years ago that gives them permission to kill and destroy and conquer whatever they like. Far as I know, no one has ever seen or read this book, though. Now, they mostly just spout off about how when the earth finally healed, then people can reclaim their rightful place at the top of the food chain, slaughtering animals and laying waste to the land. I shudder. How could anyone actually think like that? I remember reading in eco-history how, how in our distant past, huge animals like cows and sheep were raised only to be killed and eaten. If a cow walked through Eden right now, every citizen would fall on their knees in amazement. Except for the Dominion members. They'd probably start slicing steaks. But the Dominion does have one thing right, Lark said. What's that? I ask nervously. I know that mere association with the Dominion carries a mandatory prison sentence. Humans belong out in the world, not trapped in a prison city. But Eden is the only reason we survive, I say. How could we live out there? I gesture in the direction of the far edge of the city. Lark shrugs. I didn't say it was possible, she says. Only that's where we belong. 
We're part of nature, not this artificial paradise. <clears throat> I look back at the pro Celticizer. Why don't they arrest him? Oh, they will once someone starts listening to him, agreeing with him. He's safe until he has an audience. As long as he has no support, he's just an advertisement for the movement's foolishness. He'll be in prison soon enough. I shudder again. That's my fate. At the very least, if I get caught. Lark notices. Don't worry, she says. As long as you're with me, you're safe. I know these streets like the back of my hand. That phrase makes me think of Mom and calms me. Lark seems so fearless, so confident that it's rubbing off on me. I feel safe with her at my side. It's a long, circuitous, circuitous, circuit. I don't know. <laughs> God, I'm struggling. <clears throat> Walk back to my house. We even pass her house, though she doesn't point it out until we've walked beyond it. I crane my neck and see the soft, warm glow in one of the windows. Lark is chatty, which is a novelty to me. Ash tells me all about his day as soon as he gets home, and no matter how tired Mom is after work, she always makes a point of sitting down with me for a while before I go to sleep. But so many of my hours have been spent in silence. Just hearing Lark's patter is so interesting that sometimes I lose the train of her conversation and just listen to the flow of her voice, marveling that it's directed at me. Soon all of my life will be like this, with friends and conversation, but Lark will always be the first. I'm lucky, too, that she takes the burden of conversation on herself. Most of the time I really don't know what to say, how to respond. But she seems to understand, and barrels through any of my awkward pauses with a steady flow of words. She makes all this new socializing almost easy for me. When we reach our home circle, Lark suddenly stops, gripping my hand tightly. What is it? I ask in alarm. She seems frozen. A few seconds later, though, she relaxes, though she doesn't let go of my hand. <clears throat> I thought... Never mind. No, tell me, I say. She sighs, then smiles. After what you've shared with me, I guess I don't have the right to hide anything from you. I have seizures. She explains how a quirk in her brain makes her have seizures. It's kind of like a lightning storm in my brain. The neurons go crazy. The episodes usually aren't too bad, and I can almost always feel them coming on. The world goes kind of... different. Floaty. I get a little dizzy. That's why I thought I was going to have a seizure just now. The ground seemed to shift and feel off balance. Did you feel it? I shake my head. I think my heart is pounding too fast, too loud in my chest for me to notice any other sensation. She smiles at me, and we walk on, still hand in hand. When we finally reach my house, I almost don't recognize it. I've always seen it from the inside. My only glimpse from the outside was when I was fleeing it, and I didn't look back. It seems strangely stayed after the opulence of the rest of the city. The gray stones look not, er, natural. The rest of the city is all artifice. Beautiful, bright, but not natural. The sight of home, with its interlocked pattern of real stones, its muted mossy gray color, makes me homesick in anticipation. This is where I belong, I think. I can't leave home. I can't. Lark lays a hand on my shoulder, distracting me. You are so lucky to live here, she says. I know I am, but I ask, why? Expecting a conventional answer. She surprises me. I can't imagine what a thrill it must be to live in the home of Aaron Albaz. Always wondered why there isn't a plaque on the wall commemorating it. I look at her blankly. The creator of Ecopan lived here? You didn't know? 
I shake my head. My dad told me. He was the only one in Eden allowed to have a real stone house. Everything else is synthetic, but he insisted on keeping a connection to the earth. Stones aren't alive, people said, but he told them that stones are the earth's bones. I process for a moment, then say, So I'm living inside a skeleton? She tilts her head and laughs. An ossuary. A bone house. Why don't I know this? I ask. She shrugs. We all have our secrets, she says, and winks at me. Are you going to be in trouble when you go in? I honestly have no idea what awaits me. Thanks for getting me back safely, I tell her, thinking I should make some sort of formal gesture. A bow, a handshake. I really like you. I mean, meeting you, I stammer. Can you sneak out tomorrow? She blurts out. Of course, I say without thinking. Will it be possible? After tonight's escape, I doubt I can elude my parents again. Would I be brave enough? I look into Lark's earnest eyes. Yes, I think I will be. Good, Lark says. I'll meet you here tomorrow, just after dark. Don't worry, I won't tell Ash what you've been up to. I asked her not to earlier. I'm still undecided about whether I want to tell Ash about seeking out and meeting Lark. On balance, I don't think I will. At least, not yet. I want this to stay mine. I don't want to share. She tilts her head to peer up at the wall around my courtyard. Her wisps of lilac hair fall away from her face. Can you really climb that? She asks, amazed. Remembering how I had to fall the last few feet, I have my doubts. Nervously, I find a tiny handhold and grip, tensing my muscles to pull myself up. Hold on, silly, Lark says as she catches my shoulder and gently wheels me around. Aren't you even going to say goodbye? Just say the word, I tell myself. But I can't. She's looking at me with a quirky smile, curled up at one side, down at the other. Goodbye feels tragic. Until tomorrow, I say instead, and she laughs and hugs me. Until tomorrow, she repeats as if it's a magic spell. Suddenly I want to impress Lark. She's been the strong one, guiding me through the city, soothing my worries. Now I want to look strong and capable. While she's watching, I leap onto the wall and with nothing but instinct find the perfect holds. Though they're hardly more than hairline cracks, my fingertips and toes seem glued to the wall. Smoothly, hiding the effort under a veneer of pure, pure grace, I ascend halfway up, then throw my head back to look down at her. It's a reckless move, almost pitching me off balance, but isn't that what this night is about? Throwing caution to the wind? I'm gratified to see her look at me in open-mouthed amazement. Her lilac hair is almost glowing, a bright spot against the gray of my house. Rowan, you're quite a surprise, she says, almost too softly for me to hear. Elated, I scale the rest of the wall without a single mishap. At the top, I pause and look at her for a long moment. Then I swing my legs over the wall to continue the last few days of my prison sentence. I'm prepared for anything. Mom weeping, Dad shouting, everyone gone, searching for me. But to my surprise, the house is quiet and dark. I creep inside, slip off my shoes, and pad silently to Mom and Dad's bedroom. The door is slightly ajar. Peeking in, I can see their shapes as they sleep. Dad on his back on one side of the bed, Mom curled away from him at the far corner. Did they really not know I left, or did they just give up? Mom, always sensitive, surely decided I needed time alone and left me in the courtyard, apparently mulling over my fate. I close their bedroom door and head to the tiny bathroom. I mean bedroom. <laughs> I I do not know what's wrong with me. Anyways. 
I pass by Ash's bedroom and pause by the door. He's sleeping, too, his breath steady but slightly raspy. For a long moment, I look at his face. My face, almost. The resentment surges again. Why does he get everything while I, a healthier version of him, rightfully first, get nothing? Then his breath catches and stops for a long moment. This happens a lot while he sleeps. I can't tell you how many times I've waited, my own breath held, for his breathing to start up again. So far, it always has. Someday, I fear, it won't. I count seven, eight, nine. Finally, he sucks in a ragged breath and begins to snore gently. On one hand, the sound is annoying, but on the other, it's reassuring. The snores are a constant, gentle reminder that he's still breathing, still alive. I creep closer and look at his face, calm and restful in sleep. He looks young, much younger than I myself feel tonight. But then, I remember Riley, I'm technically older than him. How could I have harbored a jealous thought about him? Suddenly, I understand why Mom had to strip me of my first child privilege and let the world believe Ash is the one and only. She must have known even then that I could endure whatever suffering came my way. Ash, sick, sensitive, never could have. I look back at the endless weeks, months, years of solitude hidden away in this house. Somehow, I managed to find a measure of happiness for myself all that time. Or if not happiness, content. Sure, sometimes I cried. Other times I raged. But I got through it. And as ripped apart as I might be about having to leave home now, a part of me knows I can deal with it. It will be hard, but I can do it. A sense of peace washes over me. My anger is gone. Did meeting Lark do all that? Or did it just come from inside? The same acceptance that helped me get through all these years. I'm so tired. So tired and so happy. Mom's right. Every child leaves home. I'm just doing it a little earlier than most, and under strange conditions. But whoever's identity I assume, I'll still get to see my family. I'm sure of that. Mom wouldn't allow it to be any other way. And now, I have Lark. Wherever I am in Eden, I'll have Lark. I'm almost in my room when I hear Ash stir behind me. Rowan? He asks. I know he's only half awake, that I could make it to my room and be alone with my thoughts of freedom and Lark and friendship if I only kept going. But I turn and sit at his bedside. His eyes open a bit when he feels the compression of the bed. Where were you? He asks sleepily. In the courtyard, I reply. No, you weren't. I... I was. You just didn't see me. Or maybe I was inside when you were looking for me. He smiles, then the grin breaks in a yawn. It's a big house, but it's not that big. Where did you go? I checked all your hiding spots. I don't say anything. You went out, didn't you? It's a statement, not a question. My chin juts out defiantly. Maybe. He covers his eyes with his hand, rubbing them hard. What were you thinking, Rowan? You could have gotten caught or killed. I feel an urge to say I'm sorry. But I'm not. Not at all. I was just fine, I say instead. I catch myself. I almost said we, but I've decided not to tell Ash about Lark. Not yet. Sometimes a thing is too precious to bring out into the light. Somehow, talking about it might make the magic of the night evaporate. I didn't have any problems. No one looked at me twice. He's still angry, or scared. How could you do something so stupid, he asks. Never mind what would happen to our family if you got caught. I flush and hang my head. 
I've hardly thought about that possible consequence of my adventure. You know what the authorities would do to you if they found out you existed? I don't. Not really. I've never been told exactly, but the consequences hinted at ranged from torture to prison to slavery to death. But oh great earth, it was worth it just to escape for one night. I try to explain this to Ash, telling him about the joy and fear of seeing the people, the lights, hearing the blare of music and the babble of hundreds of people at once. He nods, understanding the depth of my loneliness, my need for more. In a conciliatory voice, he says, Mom said you're going to get your lenses soon. The way he says this makes me think Mom still hasn't told him I only have a few days left with my family. I'm so happy for you, he puts a hand over mine. Are you scared? Before I can answer, he adds, of course you're not. You're not scared of anything. I give a small, rueful laugh. There's not much to be afraid of when you don't leave the house. No, that's not true, he says. There's a new depth to him, and he seems to be looking inside himself as he talks to me. Just being alive can make people afraid. To have something so precious as life that can be taken away at any moment. He swallows hard and licks his dry lips. Not you, though. I've never seen you afraid. I make a small confession. I was afraid when I went outside the house tonight. For a while, anyway. Ash shakes his head slowly. Nah, I don't believe you. Nerves, maybe. Anxiety, uncertainty. But never fear. I know you, Rowan. You're completely brave. Even if all you've ever had to face is boredom and loneliness, you've always faced them bravely. I know exactly how you'll be when you get out into the world, at least. I mean, at last. <laughs> I cannot read. I'm struggling. You'll eclipse me entirely, he sighs. Every time I fail, I think of you, what you would do in my place. When I turn away from a group of people laughing, and I think they're laughing at me. When I try to tell Lark how I feel. I remember when Lark thought I was Ash, with some subtle difference. When her lips came near to mine. I flush in the darkness and say nothing. I'm basically a coward, Rowan, my brother confesses. Then he adds something that brings tears to my eyes. You should have been the firstborn. You would have been a benefit to Eden. More than me, anyway. What can I say? I reassure him that he's a wonderful person, an asset to the community, that he has no failings, only quirks, that he's loved. That I, in particular, love him, my other self. I wonder what I'll do without him. I wonder what he'll do without me. Go back to sleep, Ash. We can talk more in the morning. There's a melancholy edge to my thoughts, like the grim desert wasteland around Eden. But like the city itself, the center of my thoughts is bright as I drift off to sleep. I sleep late in my tiny bare chamber. When I wake, Ash is at school and Mom is at work. I feel a twinge of resentment. Shouldn't they be at home with me for my last few days in the family? Who knows when I'll be able to see them again. I might even live in an entirely different circle and just be able to see them once a once a month for Fochai and Ch Chapitus? I don't know. <laughs> in public. I hear a noise in the kitchen. My dad is home. I feel my jaw tighten right away, but make myself go in to say good morning. He's making an algae smoothie. Straight algae and water. No synth flavors. Ew. He doesn't hear me while the blender's whirring, but after he pours his green concoction into a tall, frosted glass, he turns and flinches slightly upon seeing me as if I shouldn't be there. A dribble of vicious green slush run, runs over the edge of his glass, pooling in the webbing between his thumb and forefinger. 
You're up, he says. I don't know enough about people to determine if this stating of the obvious is a common conversational opener, but my dad does it all the time. I grab a sweet roll from the basket and take a big bite. Congratulations on your appointment as vice chancellor, I say. It isn't official yet. Don't worry, I say wryly, unable to resist the jibe. I won't tell anyone. Who could I tell for the next few days anyway? Except Lark. I decide to tell her tonight, an act of defiance. I need to have you squared away before anything is publicly announced. He wipes the green drips with a pristine white cloth, then tosses the cloth into the reclamation chute. Squared away? Is that all I am to you? An issue to be dealt with? A mess to be made neat? Does my father hate me? I wonder. It's a question I've been shaping in my mind ever since I was old enough to pay attention to the world around me. It's not as simple as that, Rowan, he says. You create difficulties by your very existence. I feel my lips twitch. I want to delve into it more, but I only say bitterly, he'll be rid of me in a little while. That will be a relief, I guess. He takes another sip of his drink, scowling a bit as if he just realized how disgusting it is. In a way, he says evasively. I look at him evenly. My feelings are mixed, but as before, anger trumps sadness. It's starting to be a trend with me, I think. And you and Mom can move on with the perfect life I interrupted 16 years ago. Pretty soon, it will be like I never even existed at all. He doesn't answer, only downs the remainder of his drink and heads out the door. That was chapter 7. This took a really long time. This chapter was incredibly long. <laughs> it has been 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, so... A little quick recap, because that chapter was extremely long, like I just said. Um, Rowan and Lark are still hanging out, but they're walking back home. And on their way home, they see a Dominion member. And the Dominion is basically like this cult who believes that humans should rule the Earth. And that they're superior to, like, all animals and all other creatures. Um... And so they walk back home, Lark drops off Rowan, and they promise to meet up the next day. Um, Rowan heads back into the house. Her and Ash talk because Ash realizes that she left. And they talk for a little bit, and Ash talks about how Rowan should have been the firstborn, and she's extremely brave. Um... And then they both go back to bed, and then the next morning, when Rowan wakes up, her and her father have a little bitter exchange that kind of really brings into the light more Rowan and her dad's relationship. Because we've seen her have conversations with her mom and Ash before, so you can kind of make out how their relationship is. But not her dad yet, so clearly they do not have the best relationship. Um... So yeah, now it's time for chapter 8. I can tell this episode is going to be a bit longer than the others. Chapter 8. It is a day like any other. Almost. Like every day for the past 16 years of my life, I spend a good portion of the daylight home alone. I have my routines to keep me sane. Studying, drawing, running, and exercising until my body is exhausted and my mind is calm. But today, there's a lilac tinge on everything I do. When I draw, I find myself sketching Lark's face. When I run, it's her I'm running to. When I pull out my data blocks and vids to study, I turn immediately to all of the things Lark and I talked about. 
I search for inf I search for information on the Dominion, but there is precious little. That makes sense, I think, with a new touch of cynicism painted onto my personality by Lark. The people in charge don't want people to know about that evil cult. Even disparaging things. Disparaging? I don't know. Any information might lure new converts. So I search for, un for other topics, expanding my knowledge so I'll have more to talk about with Lark. The thing that interests me most is the earliest days of Eden. I want to find out more concerning what Lark said about the original population of Eden. How were the first residents chosen? Were they just the last straggling survivors of humanity, or were they specially selected? I need a clue about why our population started out so large, only to be trimmed to down now. As one of the trimmed, I take it personally. But there's almost nothing beyond what I already know. In fact, every source says almost exactly the same thing, in almost identical words, like a mantra or a prayer. The remnants of the human species gathered in Eden to wait until the earth was renewed. That's all, as if people were some migrating animals who coalesced by instinct, going into hibernation to wait out a long winter. I never noticed before how few details there are on our own history. I didn't question very much until now. I just swallowed down whatever I was fed. I turn instead to our founding father, Aaron Albaz. There's a ton of information on him, all of it laudatory. It reads more like a legend than pure history. Like every child in Eden, I learned this all before, but now that I know I'm living in the great man's house, it seems closer, more vital. I, real I read how Albaz was mocked as a young man for his radical beliefs in the coming end of the world. Still, he attracted many followers, even as others condemned him and found fault in his science. He suffered deep humiliation as he was ostracized from the scientific community, his theories about man's doomed interaction with the earth torn to shreds. Breathless, I read about his self-imposed exile as he heroically dedicated his life to saving the planet. He was so secretive during that time that there are few facts, only anecdotes. He was trying to stop world governments from approving policies that were killing the environment. And from what I can gather, his methods were not 100% above the law. When the heads of nations wouldn't listen, he forced them to listen. In that newly burgeoning digital age, when everything on the planet was already well on its way to being linked, a skilled computer scientist could force governments to pay attention. They called his methods hacking, techno-terrorism, cyber-guerrilla warfare, but he never harmed a soul, not a person or beast or plant. Unlike the world governments and the destructive weapons and technology they controlled, Al-Baz only took over systems to prove his point, to make people see that they were on a path to to destruction, and offer them an alternative. For his pains, he was questioned multiple times and placed under house arrest, his assets frozen. Somehow, he escaped prison for many years. Then came the eco-fail. According to the history I'm reading, the world governments were about to launch their mission to alter the atmosphere to fight global warming. A laudable ambition, though Albaz told them it wouldn't work. He tried to stop them, attacking the system that would launch the particles into the atmosphere. But he failed, and was thrown in prison, and while he was captive, the Earth died. By the time his followers broke him out, there was barely time to implement his long-term plan, the work of his lifetime. Eden. He activated the program that turned all of the world's technology outward toward, link toward linked goals, reviving the planet and saving mankind. In an act of great nobility, he saved the people who betrayed him and the Earth, or as many as he could. 
He preserved the humans who had been unable to care for their own planet. Albaz gave us all a second chance, an opportunity to do penance for our selfishness, our stupidity. And I've lived in his house all my life and never knew it. Just a second. I need a quick water break. Because I have been reading for almost 40 minutes. And I just started chapter 8, so. Okay. As soon as mom comes home, before either Ash or dad, I pounce with questions. How did we end up living in Aaron Albaz's house? Can we talk about it later? She asks. There are dark circles under her eyes, and her hair is uncharacteristically messy, with strands flying crazily out of her usually tight twist. We have a lot of other things to discuss. No, this is important, I say. How could I not know? She shrugs. It isn't a big deal. We're distant relations through a sister, I think. But it was a long time ago. How did you find out? I didn't quite think that one through, but she doesn't seem to notice the long pause before I say. I came across a mention in the old history of Eden. Is there anything here that belonged to him? Oh no, she says quickly. It was so long ago. Not really. Two hundred years isn't that many generations. She won't tell me any more, and immediately changes the subject. Your lenses are ready to be implanted. I hurl myself into her arms. She's a little taken aback, and I realize she's expecting me to still be upset at leaving home. I am, of course, but to my chagrin, the first thing I think of is that I'll be more easily able to walk the streets safely when I sneak out tonight to see Lark. <clears throat> With my eyes looking flat like everyone else's, and what's more keyed to someone else's identity, I can walk past any green shirt without a qualm. When do we leave? I ask. Oh, they're ready, but your surgery won't be for a little while. Another couple of days, at least. And with them, I can pass as an official citizen? A firstborn? She nods. These will be a huge step up from the black market lenses criminals use. They can't access all of the technology. Some things, like the filter for the altered sun rays and the identity chip, work okay on the cheap removable lenses. But there are deeper layers that no one has been able to suss out. Until we found someone brilliant. Normally, the lenses are manufactured in a factory and then sent to to the center for further modification by Ecopan. The cyber surgeon we found managed to hack into the center to get the exact specifications. You don't have to worry. They'll work perfectly. Lots of other second children aren't as lucky as you. Lots? I repeat. This is the first I've ever heard of other second children. What a day for revelations. A few, yes, but others use the cheap, removable lenses now. I mean, two. I don't know why I read now. My sources don't talk much, as you might imagine, but from what I gather, there are criminals using lower quality fake lenses, rebels, cheating husbands and wives, so I'm in great company. But back to the second children. How many of us are there? I ask. She presses her leaves, her <laughs> I meant lips. Good lord, I'm sorry. The reason why this is probably taking so long is because I've messed up approximately 600 times. She presses her lips together briefly. Not many. According to my source, perhaps twenty still walking the streets. Oh, that's... Wait, what do you mean still? Oh, honey, you'll be just fine. We found a real genius to make your lens implants. Bought the most secure identity, bribed all the right people. What are you saying? She bites her lip. 
My source told me that the survival rate for second children trying to integrate into society isn't as high as we'd like. You mean we die? No, no, she hastily begins, then amends it to, well, a few are captured, but there are a lot who simply disappear. A chill tickles my spine. Don't worry, honey, it won't happen to you. We've taken every precaution. She shakes her head as if tossing away the unpleasant thoughts. I'm haunted by the image of second children disappearing. The way mom said it, it sounded like they just evaporate, turn into mist and drift away. It might be, it must be the center though, capturing second children. They must be dragged away into the night and fog and no one ever knows what happened to them. Mom won't talk about it anymore, no matter how much I press. Not long afterward, Ash comes home, and with a quick mutual glance, Mom and I agree not to discuss anything serious or worrying in front of him. Stress aggravates his condition. I also want to ask where I'll be going. Will it be to a childless couple? Will I be posing as an orphan, adopted by a kind relative? I might even have a brother or sister. Will I like them? My new family must be kind, though, if they're taking the risk of welcoming in a secret second child. They'll be generous and loving and patient and caring, and they'll help ease my way into the world. I know they will, because only that sort of person would defy all Eden to help a child. How can I worry too much when I have Lark's company to look forward to? Dinner passes insufferably slowly. I know I should be savoring every moment with my family before it all changes, but my thoughts keep straying to tonight. Before I go to bed, I look at my strange, multicolored eyes. What will I feel like when my eyes are flat and dull like everybody else's? I won't be me anymore. Even though everyone I've really seen in my life, all four of them aside from passerby last night, has these flat, lifeless eyes, it shocks me to imagine seeing them staring blankly out of my own face. Those flat eyes are unnatural, wrong, in a way I never appreciated before until it became personal. All the light and variation of my irises will be crushed. They'll be an adult. They'll be a dull gray blue. I'll look like a blind girl, though my vision will be unchanged. Rip toff. Anyways, <laughs> Mom ducks her head into the bathroom, and I blink to hide the moisture gathering in my eyes. Your dad and I are taking the day off work tomorrow to be with you, and Ash is staying home. We'll have a real family party then. All your favorite foods. And we'll have a chance to talk about... She breaks off. Some important things you need to know. Whatever they are, why did she wait until my final days to tell me? Soon afterward, everyone is in bed. I pretend to sleep too, but under my bed is a bag containing the clothes I plan to wear. I breathe slowly, quietly, listening to the sounds of the house. Ash turning in his sleep, the soft settling sound the walls make when the temperature drops at night. When I'm sure everyone is deeply asleep, I grab my bag and slip out to the courtyard. Right on the other side is the world. And Lark. My fingers tremble as I strip off my nightclothes and stand almost naked in the dark. Above me the skies twinkle dimly, and I tilt my head back to let their muted light fall on me. I know almost nothing about the stars, not their names or the science behind them, but I love looking at their glowing patterns because they remind me that there's a world outside of my courtyard. Outside of Eden, even. And they make me think of my most treasured possession. The ancient, faded, crumbling photo from before the eco-fail that Mom smuggled out of the archives. I've brought it to share with Lark. She can keep secrets. 
I thought more about what to wear than what I did about leaving home. The fact embarrasses me, but I know that if I didn't have the distraction of Lark and sneaking out, I'd be going crazy with what's happening in the rest of my life. After long consideration and much pawing through my meager wardrobe, mostly made up of duplicates of Ash's school uniforms and casual clothes, I settled on one of my few feminine pieces. A deep red skirt that flares to my mid-thigh. The material is imbued with subtle sparkles that flash when the light hits them just so. For the rest, I chose black. Partly from limited choice, partly from an instinct that tells me I may need to blend into the night if anything goes wrong. I tuck my black leggings into my soft ankle boots and adjust the shoulders of a snug synth wool sweater knitted in an open weave. I know I'll look dull alongside the, lur the lurid magenta and ultramarine and cannery colors favored by the residents of Eden, but the shock of red at my hips is a rare treat for me. I hope, re I hope <laughs> Lark likes it. I don't want to risk triggering the alarm on the front door, so I scale the wall. Now I remember why I rarely wear skirts and sit at the top, hunkered low to reduce my profile, looking for Lark. For one terrible moment, I don't see her. Then she emerges from the shadows, starlight on lilac, and the entire world seems to settle into place. I remember most of the tricky holds for the way down and scale the wall easily, leaping down the last four feet just to show off. You're amazing, Lark cries as she runs up to me. How do you do that? When you climb, you look like a squirrel or a gecko. And you look like a flower, I blurt out before I can stop myself. She lowers her head for a second, but when she raises it, her eyes are shining. Here, she says, and hands me a pair of glasses. I unfold them and see that the lenses are in a f faceted kaleidoscope of pink and sky blue and lilac. Lark slips on a pair of her own. Dragonfly glasses, she tells me. Aren't they beautiful? Lots of people are wearing them, even at night, so no one will even think about your eyes. I put them on. Despite the facets on the lenses, when I look through them, my vision isn't fractured. The only difference is that a pink-purple glow is cast over the world. Eden has gone rosy tonight. Lark takes my hand. Come on! I want to run! And then we're off, down the road, our linked arms swinging, laughing, careless of who might hear us. We're just two girls enjoying life. Why would anyone do look twice? It isn't long before she's panting, though I'm only just warming up. I feel like I can run forever. I can't run like you, she gasps out. How did you get so fast and so strong? There's not much else for me to do except to run and climb and stretch and exercise, I explain. She regards me in what I think is admiration. You're so... She breaks off, shaking her head. Do you know what you could do with speed like that? No one could ever catch you. The green shirts are soft compared to you. Why, I bet you could even outrun a security bot. And climbing could be pretty useful to someone who... She stops herself again. But we shouldn't talk about that now. Not until we get there. Where's there? I ask. She gives me her quirky up and down smile. That's for me to know. And you to find out. She crooks her elbow in mine and we head to the nearest auto loop station. Da 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 da! That was chapter 8. My throat is very dry because I took almost an hour reading these. Nice. Um, but yeah, those were chapters seven and eight. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I don't really know what else to say. Um, 
Just to kind of put it in perspective for you, we're on page 83, and there are 278 pages. So, <laughs> we're not incredibly far in, but, you know, we're making our way. Making my way downtown, walking fast, faces past, and I'm homebound. But anyway... Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Remember to stay tuned tomorrow for another episode of me reading chapters 9 and 10. Usually I read when I'm done with school, so probably like around 2.30ish, depending on whatever, but (laughs) so you'll probably see episodes around 3.30, 4. So stay tuned for that. Um... Have a swag day, and I'll see y'all tomorrow. Bye.